here, uh, you know, with me today, Malcolm Harkins from uh, Silence, and uh, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your role uh, there at Silence? Hey, thanks, Tony. Uh, Malcolm Harkins. I'm uh, Silence's Chief Security and Trust Officer. So, in in my scope of responsibilities, I have our internal information risk and security and controls compliance efforts, um, our public policy um, areas. Uh, and spend a lot of time uh, with our customers because we're a third-party service provider, so they want to know and understand how we protect our systems and how we protect our information um, in order to also further help protect them um, when they buy our products and services. All right. Very nice. Um, yeah, so I've, I've you know, known I've known Stuart McClure for, for years, and I've known um, about Silence since it launched. Um, and uh, been you know, very impressed with uh, what you guys have accomplished and, and kind of how you've accomplished it. But um, you know, one of the things that you know, I, I've, I've seen and I kind of want to get your thoughts on it is that you, ha you have a unique approach um, compared to a lot of the companies that you're, you're competing with. Um, and that you know, because it's unique, it doesn't fit into kind of the, you know, the, the square peg in the round hole um, in terms of what people are used to looking for. Um, and so when you look at, you know, like a lot, of, a lot of weight is given, a lot of buying decisions are made based on uh, analyst reports and, and, and different you know, sort of media uh, reports that silence doesn't really fit into. So what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's a good thing. Um, I, I don't think the, the current model works. It, we just, you know, have to pick up the newspaper every day or, or look at the web and, and see breach after breach after breach, attack after attack after attack, leak after leak after leak for decades now. So clearly something's wrong with the current approach. Something's wrong with the current paradigm because the only thing it's doing is perpetuating pain for organizations that are suffering from uh, these problems and profit for the security industry who makes money on the insecurity of computing. True. I mean, yeah, there, there, there were always, you know, sort of pervasive rumors about, uh, you know, whether or not the, you know, the, the antivirus makers were also had some sort of black ops going in the background making the viruses too. So <laughs> kind of self-perpetuating. Uh, industry. Yeah, I, I don't particularly believe in you know any of that conspiracy theory view of it. But if you do look at the fundamental economics aspect of it, the security industry profits from the insecurity of computing. So it profits from problems. It profits from throwing bodies and more tools and solutions at it. So from a macroeconomic incentive, the vast majority of the industry has no economic incentive to get to the heart of the problem and stop it. Right. It has the incentive to provide "quote unquote" protection. That doesn't mean that you've prevented the problem. Well, it, it means minimizing, in some cases, damage, but but you're not getting to the core of the issue. Well, right. I was going to say. I think you. I think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of, you know, you're 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 not preventing the problem. Um, I think that. A lot of the industry and a lot of you know the way the industry is viewed and measured, and a lot of the ways that people 
make buying decisions is based on the reactive model. It's based on, okay, I've been attacked. There is a virus, you know, whatever, like, you know, now, you know, how, how can I clean that up or how can I respond to that? And, you know, so if you come into that market with a, with a, a different model that says, well, wait, what if we just prevented that from happening in the first place? You know, nobody knows, <laughs> nobody knows how, to, how to measure that against their traditional approach. Right, they don't, and and this is where you know I've I've written it in uh, my second book uh, a few years ago, and I and I talk about it in terms of what I call the nine box of controls. And again, if we abstract this up to almost any type of risk issue, it could be a logical risk issue or a physical risk issue or something. I think we all know there's three types of controls. You you know you've got preventative controls, detective controls, and response controls, and and when you go from prevention to response, risk grows. And then there's pr approaches that you can take to those controls, automated, semi-automated, manual. And as you go from automated solutions to manual ones, cost grows. And, and when you really, again, think about the nature and the purpose of the controls, detection and response are damage minimization controls. The two macro dials you can play with are time to detect and time to contain. Prevention is the only true form of minimizing vulnerability and minimizing the potential for harm at the beginning. And I think, again, when we think about it from a physical realm, it's easier for people to um, wrap their head around it. I think we all want to uh, prevent a house fire from destroying the home and, and killing the occupants. Right, and, and I think if you look at building codes and, and what's happened over you know, the past 100 plus years where there used to be more fires and structures would get burned to the ground and we built better, you know, and then we still have a fire department, we still have sprinkler systems, we still have fire alarms, but the focus was on how do I make my stove, how do I make my toaster, how do I make the, the items that are in the home less likely to catch on fire and burned down house. So we focused on prevention because we had to. Right. No, nope, that, that makes sense. And and to, to some extent, I view, um, you know, having sort of been on both sides of this fence, both, at, you know, in, in the industry as a network admin and, and IT security analyst, and then kind of on the other side as a you know, journalist and, 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 and writer, um, I, I view some of the industry reports and, and things like that, sort of the same way I view movie critics where, you know, I mean, a movie comes out and a lot of times the critics will pan it and say, well, you know, this was bad. But when I look into, okay, well, what are you saying is bad about it? It's oftentimes a lot, it's stuff I don't know about or care about. I mean, I, I you know, it's, you know, lighting or whatever, you know, it, it, like kind of esoteric things. And ultimately, you know, my measure of the movie is, is it worth my, you know, ten dollars and and two hours of my life? Um, is it entertaining enough to meet that bar? And so for me, something like Rotten Tomatoes is a much more valuable barometer than a movie critic because I feel like they're a little pretentious. Um, and so in, in in the same in the same way, if I was in the market and I was trying to make a decision about protecting endpoints, I would be much more interested in. Um, what other people in my role think 
you know, what are other companies actually doing and seeing and, you know, that, that, that sort of that, that, that customer feedback is more important to me than the critics. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and I tend to agree with you. I, I, I also have, you know, think that when you when you think about um, analysts, uh, let, let's think of a, a different market: financial analysts that are making recommendations on stocks. They have to provide a level of transparency. What ownership do they have? What motivations do they have? Do they have any um, position that would be um, improved financially for themselves um, based upon their recommendations? And they have to provide that level of transparency. Um, in terms of the holdings and, and, and stuff for not only themselves, but, but the organization they report to. Yeah, I think when you get into some of the, the technology analysts and, and organizations that do that, in, the other way to look at them is they're in the publishing business. They're selling reports. And so whatever grabs a headline, whatever creates uh, movement to sell a report or garner eyesight on it, much like a media company, is valuable to their business model. And so I think you always have to take things with a grain of salt and do your own independent analysis and evaluation. And it has to be done based upon objective business outcomes you're looking for. And for me, those have always boiled into three simple things. How does the solution alter the risk curve? And, and hopefully it creates a demonstrable and sustainable bend of the curve of risk. How does it affect my total cost of controls? Not the purchase price, but my total cost of control so that you can look at by preventing more, are you reducing the reaction and response? Are you reducing the liabilities of your organization? Are you reducing the waste that gets created? out of a response-based control architecture. And then finally, the other business outcome that I've always had to think about, and I, and I suggest to all of my peers that they do as well, is to look at the efficiency of the control. Because most controls are degrading the user experience, they're degrading the computing experience, they're getting in the way of the business objective and the business user. And so for me, the, the, the evaluation anybody should do is the risk one, the total cost one, and this notion that I have of control friction, how much you know, uh, drag is the control creating on the environment, the computing, and on the user. And then from there, you know, make an independent decision by, by having the criteria there to figure out what you're trying to do for your organization. Yeah. I mean... That all of that is that makes perfect sense, um, and and I think that you you do have to kind of look at things that way because one of one of the other things I think about when I when I think about like the uh, industry reports and analyst reports and things like that is you know they're trying to measure something so they they have to measure it based on a set of criteria, and part of the problem is their criteria are based on history. Their criteria are based on what they know from last year. And the criteria and the factors they look at aren't equipped to handle something that's a new approach or an innovative solution because it doesn't fit into that criteria. Um, so I, you know, I, I liken it to if there were if there had been an analyst report about about horseshoes and how they would have handled Henry Ford 
and they would have said, sorry, you know, you, you don't, you don't fit into our horseshoe report. Yeah, totally. And that totally makes sense. And I agree with you. It, there's, there's the framing, um, of, uh, the stuff like you had mentioned, but there's also, again, uh, you get that outcome. You know, a lot of these evaluations are framed in a dated model, but they're also subjective and qualitative criteria. It's not measured on, again, business outcomes. Right. It's so. measured on features and or um, qualitative criteria like that, where the feature may, may in and of itself not actually yield the business outcome you want. You know, again, it's it, like you're saying, it, it's the comparison of um, a horseshoe to an automobile and you know, what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to be able to um, get from point A to point B in you know, 10 or 15 minutes with uh, passengers and, and uh, goods? Or are you wanting to get there in two hours by yourself? Precisely, and, that's, and, that, and I think that if you, if, you could, if you take that kind of fundamental perspective shift and say, instead of me trying to measure how do these things fit into the criteria and the factors that I've predetermined, I think you got to take that from the from the end result and work backwards and say, okay, well, what are we trying to do? Are we, you know, we're we're trying to protect endpoints. Okay, well, what are the best ways? You know, like you know, which of these things does that the best? Instead of saying which one of these, you know comes in a network appliance form factor or which one of these, you know, uh, you know, has signatures that are, you know, come out, you know, every, you know, once, once an hour or whatever, you know, look at that from the end result and say, okay, ultimately I'm trying to protect endpoints. I'm trying to prevent things from, you know, I'm trying to prevent security incidents from occurring. So let's measure from that perspective. Yeah. And that's, and that's clearly what, a CISO and their business wants. Again, if you look at it from the business model of a lot of the security industry, again, if I quieted down the environment and I didn't have so many uh, issues and incidents, then I wouldn't have five other products to sell you. You know, I, I've had this dialogue with some peers. You take. DLP software. And again, it, it's useful for some things, but I've had conversations with peers. It's like, why did you buy DLP software? Well, to prevent the exfiltration of my data by a bad actor. It's like, okay, will it do that? No, because that bad actor will roar up the file. They'll change the signature. They'll do something past it. So you've just wasted your money on DLP, but DLP was sold because of malicious code incidents or insider risk, and even an insider, uh, they'll be able to get past DLP if, if they're intentionally trying to take data. And so, again, it, it was sold for a purpose, the effectiveness of it isn't there, and in some cases it was sold because AV wasn't working to stop systems from getting owned and you know data leakage from occurring. Right. So we created DLP and said, let's slap on another control that also doesn't really work. Well, and there's also, you know, a, a, another 
kind of negative uh, impact of the whole concept is then you have companies that are out there who, you know, may, maybe have an innovative solution, you know, whatever their solution is, but they're, they, but they're trying to compete in a given market. And because so much weight is placed on some of these reports, they might look at that and say, okay, these are the criteria. How can I kind of wedge those criteria into my product, even though they don't make sense and they don't benefit the customer. And, you know, like it, it doesn't make sense for me to put this in there. It, you know, to go back to my Henry Ford example, it'd be like Henry Ford saying, all right, well, how can I figure out how to mount some horseshoes onto my Model T so that it can fit into this report? Right. Yeah. It'd be like, hey, I'll put horseshoes on it so that I can say that I've got horseshoes. And all you've done is actually added weight to the car you probably wouldn't put them any place, uh, hopefully on the tires, because they would uh, um, alter the ability to actually drive. But you'd hang them someplace as a, uh, uh, a token to say, I've got it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so you, 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 you sort of, as the vendor, kind of wasted time and resources to put on unnecessary things that don't benefit the end result just so you can meet a predetermined set of criteria. Right. Just like if you really needed a horse for um, certain terrain or um, you know, an expedition you were doing, looking for features like a tire and a gas tank is useless too. Right. So, um, well, I mean, and, then, and then so, you know, that, that, to kind of circle back to where we started then, I mean, that that is an an issue that I think Silence has, has sort of had to deal with all along. And, and you've done it very successfully, more successfully than a lot of other companies that have tried to come up with an innovative approach. Um, you know, and I, I, I often point back to uh, the fact that Silence was the first, and I believe still the only, like non-traditional antivirus that's recognized by Windows as an endpoint security solution. So it'll quit bugging you about installing something. Yep. Um, and so that's, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty phenomenal progress right there in terms of, you know, making that argument and, and kind of moving things forward. Um, so, you know, uh, I think, I think you guys have succeeded there, but, uh, uh, there's still, there's still some ways to go though. It, t it takes a while. I mean, we can see in history over and over again, where people who had a different and alternative view that in many ways was better and right, were, were listed as heretics. I mean, just think of Galileo, right? He was excommunicated. It was only centuries later that the Catholic Church reversed their position because what he was proclaiming and what he believed and what he was able to prove was so out of the ordinary for what the church and others wanted to have people believe in terms of the world being flat or not, and whether or not Earth was the center of the universe or not. Right. All right. Well, um, yeah, I think, like I said, I think you guys have uh, done done very well at it, and and and, you know, and there is a long way to go. And, and like you just said, I mean, it, it it's it's a it's it's a big shift to turn around. Um, you know, I mean, the industry is entrenched. Uh, kind of the mindset of analyzing and 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 purchasing security solutions is kind of carved in stone to some extent. And so it, it, it takes some time to kind of shift that mindset. But, uh, you know, 
just you, you got to just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, thanks. I I, I agree, and you know, there's a uh, reminds reminds me in closing here of a uh, quote from uh, John F. Kennedy: "The problems of the world cannot be solved by skeptics or cynics whose horizons are limited by the obvious realities. We need men who can dream of things that never were and ask why not." I think silence has done that in the cybersecurity space and in, in focusing on what can be done. And uh, it's, it's uh, a challenge. It's uh, an opportunity. And I certainly see from our customers who've adopted a prevention based control architecture. Still, you need detection and response, but the prevention first with the right degree of control business benefits that they're getting, the value they're creating for their organizations is enormous. I agree. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Tony. All right. Take care. Bye. So I would like to give a quick shout out to Silence. Uh, Silence is one of the original sponsors of Techspective, and I really appreciate their support. I also think that you would really appreciate what they do. Silence is revolutionizing cybersecurity with products and services that uh, proactively prevent uh, rather than just reactively detecting the execution of advanced persistent threats and malware. Um, if you are not familiar with Silence, I highly suggest you learn more. Uh, if you go on the TechSpective website at the upper right uh, under sponsors, you can click on the Silence logo and it will take you to the site or you can visit the site directly. It's at C-Y-L-A-N-C-E.com. Go check it out and learn more about silence. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and hopefully you are also following us on social media. But if you really want to stay up to date with what's new on Techspective, you need to also subscribe to our free email newsletter. The reason is uh, the algorithms used on social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter um, make it so that you might not see our content even if you do like or follow TechSpective. So you can subscribe to our daily and or weekly email newsletter to make sure that you don't miss a thing. Just scroll all the way down to the bottom right of TechSpective and click on subscribe in the menu.